following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Matthew chapter 5. You can see I'm not preaching a specifically Mother's Day message today. Uh, I thought about doing so, but um, did one the last couple years and uh, just started a new series last week, so... I wanted to continue the momentum, so to speak, of what we started last Sunday. And um, as well, though, we're going to jump into the Beatitudes today. And, uh, and they provide a beautiful picture of the sincere, compassionate humility that, that our God loves. And, uh, and you won't find a more fitting picture, a more fitting model of what a godly wife and mother should be, what a godly woman should be than what you have right here in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 10. And so if God gave you a mother who reflected the spirit of of these verses, then then you're blessed. And uh, ladies, uh, I can't think of a better model of godly womanhood for you to pursue than what Jesus is going to describe in the Beatitudes. And and one of the best gifts that you can give to your, your family to your church, to everyone around you, is to be the person that Jesus describes. So so let's go ahead and read Matthew 5, verses 3 through 10. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now these beatitudes, as as we oftentimes call them, are among the most famous sayings of Jesus. And they're famous for a reason. They're simple. Uh, as well, they're memorable. They can, in many respects, they're surprising. Jesus is going to say some things in here that, that defy uh, our normal expectation, the normal ways that we function. And as well, they are supremely convicting, very challenging. And uh, today, uh, I'm just going to get to the first three. Uh, but before we get to them, I'd like to just make some, some general comments about the Beatitudes to maybe help us understand the whole. So, uh, first of all, the first thing I wanted to just mention is that you you might be wondering, what in the world, where did this word Beatitude even come from? And so, here's the answer. Uh, Beatitude uh, comes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed. Now, now there's no interpretive significance to that, but now you know, all right? So, Uh, Because this word came along well after Jesus said these things. Uh, But if anything, that that name, Beatitudes, highlights the fact that the Beatitudes are fundamentally about blessing. All right? So so Jesus is going to tell us in these verses how we can be blessed, which is something I think we all want. We don't want to be unblessed, or if that's even a word, we want to be blessed. But then you might wonder, well, what does it mean to be blessed? We use that word all the time, uh, but what exactly is blessing? So, a blessed means to enjoy God's favor 
and the contentment he offers through every circumstance. Now, I'll say at the outset here that it's rather popular in our day, uh, in, in some of the more modern translations, to instead of saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, to instead translate the Greek word for blessed here, makarios, as happy. So you might read in some of the translations, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, happy are those who mourn, and so forth. And, and the reason that people like that is, for one, we just like quirky, weird things at times. Uh, but I think the main thing is, is that, of course, happy is a more familiar word to us than blessed. And as well, we live in a society that is obsessed with being happy. We, we care. You know, we, we don't want to be sad. We want to be happy all the time. But the problem with translating it as happy is that happy, at least as we understand it, falls terribly short of capturing the full weight of biblical blessing. So that's because, uh, you know, happy, at least in terms of how we understand it, is just too trite. You know, for example, verse 4 says, blessed are those who mourn. And at least our concept of happiness doesn't leave any room for grief, sorrow, or mourning. So, so Jesus is talking about something here that is much deeper than happiness. So in particular, God's blessing is fundamentally rooted not in how I feel or, or even in the circumstances of my life. No, God's blessing is fundamentally a divine pronouncement of God's favor or God's approval on my life. So, for example, God pronounces a blessing on the poor in spirit. You know, even though I imagine that if you're truly poor in spirit, there's a lot of times that you don't feel blessed. But God approves, and God's favor is upon you. So, so the core concern of the Beatitudes is how can I enjoy the favor or the approval of God on my life? And of course, there's nothing in life that matters more. You can have the favor of all sorts of people, and who cares if you lack the favor of God? You can have every toy and treasure this world offers, but if you don't have the favor of God, it's all worthless. So we live for the approval of one, and if God is pleased with me, then it doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks. We live for His approval and His alone. So to be blessed is fundamentally to enjoy God's favor, but, but the Scriptures also teach that God's blessing brings a unique joy to my life today. Now, now I do think that the word happy uh, goes too far towards the emotional end of the spectrum, but the Bible does teach that when God's favor rests on my life, that He does give a, a deep-seated joy and contentment. I like how John MacArthur says it. He describes the, the idea here. He says that God gives a deep supernatural, excuse me, uh, that God says to be blessed is not a superficial feeling of well-being based on circumstance, but a deep supernatural experience of contentedness based on the fact that one's life is right with God. I think that's so well said. That, that yes, God's blessing does not mean that your problems evaporate or, or that you are happy all the time or that God makes you rich and fulfills all of your wildest dreams. That is not fundamentally what the blessing of God brings. But God does give a, a deep-seated joy 
and contentment. You know, and in fact, the Beatitudes are going to admit that even if you are blessed with God, sometimes life is filled with hardship and pain. But even in the midst of the pain, even as you mourn, for example, we can know that God is pleased with me. And in the knowledge that God is pleased with me, I can have a deep, supernatural experience of contentedness. And it is a great gift that when life is going up and down and all over the place and it's uncertain, to know that anchor is there, that God is pleased, and if I do what's right, He will look with favor on me, no matter what else is going on around me. So, so, so that's what God's blessing is. And then a third thing, uh, something else that stands out about the Beatitudes is that God's values are different from ours. Now, I imagine if you were to go around Apple Valley this afternoon and ask people to tell me what the blessed life is, what do you think people would say? And, and some people, you know, they might know the right answers to give, but what do they really believe down in their heart? What do they want? What do they believe is favor? Well, I imagine most people would say things like professional success, respect, money, a nice house, nice cars, a gorgeous wife, a handsome husband, children that are respected and, and successful. But you, know, you read through the Beatitudes, God says who is blessed, and He doesn't mention any of those things. No, instead, a God's, instead, Jesus speaks of things that, that we desperately try to avoid. You know, our society is terrified by grief. We don't want to mourn. We don't want to be weak. We don't want to have any conflict at all. We want to be strong and respected. We, we do not want to be poor in spirit. And we certainly don't want to be persecuted. But the Bible consistently teaches that God values humility, and He is near to the afflicted. Isaiah 61 verse 1 says, the Spirit of the, this is Messiah uh, here speaking, it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me, notice, to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So Jesus, Jesus isn't chasing the cool kids. He's not interested in, in human glory. No, He loves the humble. And it is so important that we learn to conform our values to the Savior's. So don't let the world shape your understanding of what the blessed life is. No, pursue the qualities that please the Lord. You know, I think that's a very appropriate challenge for Mother's Day. Because the world's definition of a successful woman is so different from what the Scriptures lay out as true success. So ladies, don't worry about what the world tells you you need to be. Worry about what God says and about winning His favor and His approval. And then a fourth point about the Beatitudes is that God's blessings are rich, deep, and eternal. Now, now notice uh, here that, that the first reward in, in verse 3 is the kingdom of heaven. And then, if you jump down to verse 10, the reward in the last beatitude is the same thing. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, so that tells us that since he begins and ends with the same reward, that the fundamental blessing 
that God gives is a place in the kingdom of heaven. And really, everything else in the Beatitudes goes back to this fundamental reward of God. And when we think of the kingdom of heaven, now, now there are times in the, in the Gospels where, where Jesus mentions that the kingdom of God is near and, and that we can be citizens of the kingdom today. But, but really, when, when you think of Jesus' Jewish audience when he originally preached this sermon, when he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, they would have all understood him to be speaking about that the kingdom that God had promised to Israel through the prophets. You know, a kingdom that's coming at the end of the age when, when Jesus defeats evil and, and rules from the city of Jerusalem over, over the entirety of the earth. So, so he's thinking here not about something that is in this life. The focus of the Beatitudes is a hope that is bound up in eternity with God. And you see that eternal focus in other places. You know, so for example, verse 5. You know, the meek are not inheriting the earth today, are they? That's in the future. And as well, uh, verse 8, the pure in heart are not seeing God today. So both of those promises are clearly looking to a future kingdom. So, so, this, so this is important. The Beatitudes don't teach that the blessed life will necessarily bring you material rewards today. God's not going to make you rich. I mean, He may, but He's not promising it. He's not promising to fulfill your dreams in this life. No, really, when you consider the types of lowly people that God blesses, those who mourn, those who are meek, all those different things, God, I mean, actually, they're things that, that, that we discourage, that, that we don't want. So, so God blesses people who oftentimes suffer in this world. And, are to, and, and face challenging, hard circumstances. So, so, so while we suffer today, but, but while we suffer today, the kingdom of heaven, the earth, the presence of God awaits us in eternity. And folks, it will all be worth it. So, so don't live for the blessings of this life. Pursue God's eternal reward. All right, but I also must add, that, that, that while it's true that, that the fundamental rewards that God promises are in eternity, it's not as if God just leaves us high and dry today. So, so, so he, there's certainly in, the, in these verses a, a present aspect. For example, to God's comfort. God gives comfort today. God gives mercy today. He gives righteousness today, among other things. And again, as, as MacArthur says, God gives a deep supernatural experience of contentedness based on the fact that one's life is right with God. And that blessing, contentedness in the Lord, it is worth far more than, than all the stuff that we can get. First Timothy 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 and 7 say, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. So to rest in the Lord, to have joy in Him, is to be blessed, regardless of what else is going on in my life. So, so do you want joy today? And do you want God's blessing for all of eternity? Well, well, then listen up to what Jesus says in these eight verses about what brings God's favor. So, so with that being said, let's look at the first three Beatitudes with the remainder of our time. So first of all, 
God's blessing rests on the poor in spirit. So, so verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as I have on the screen there, to, to be poor in spirit means to have an awareness of my spiritual poverty. Now, now some people are going to argue that, that Jesus here is not thinking of spiritual poverty, but of literal physical poverty, of, of not having money or, or material things. And they say that because uh, a minute ago we read Isaiah 61 verse 1, and it says that when Messiah comes, He will rescue the afflicted, people who are poor, physically speaking. And it's certainly true, I mean, the Scriptures are very clear, that God has a special place in His heart for those who are poor and those who are afflicted. But in verse 3, Jesus specifically tells us that He is concerned for those who are poor in spirit. So, so the focus here is not on my physical condition, it's instead focused on what is in my heart. And specifically, Jesus is describing a spiritual condition. As I've said, it's an awareness of my spiritual poverty. And I, and I put that word awareness in there because in reality, everyone is spiritually poor, right? We're all sinners, we all fall desperately short of the glory of God, so there is no one who is in themselves spiritually rich. But, but, but not everyone recognizes it. So to be poor in spirit is to be aware of that poverty. And a great illustration of this is found for us in Luke 18. So, so keep your finger here and turn over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and, and we're going to look at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So Jesus here is speaking, he's telling a story, and it says in Luke 18 verse 9, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. It's just an incredibly arrogant statement, isn't it? You know, and it's hard to even imagine saying something like that, let alone to boast like that to God. Now, the reality is probably most people are smart enough to know not to verbalize that. But in reality, a lot of people think this way. They think they're really religious. They think they've got things together. They think that God should be thankful to have them. And they thumb their nose at everyone else. And that fact, that, that, that personality, that, that thinking, puts into relief, make, makes the tax collector's prayer all the more beautiful. Notice verse 13. It says, And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, what a perfect illustration of the heart that Jesus encourages in Matthew 5, verse 3. This tax collector, he has no, no uh, inhibitions that, that he is something great. No, no, he recognizes that God is holy and that he is a sinner who falls desperately short. So, so rather than trying to impress God with, with who he is and all that he does, 
he recognizes that he has no hope in himself to receive grace. So he just begs for mercy. He asks God to give a mercy that he cannot earn himself. And as a result, notice Jesus' evaluation in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man, speaking of the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, God is not impressed by our religious show, but he rejoices in a broken humility. Isaiah 61, or excuse me, 66, verses 1 and 2 say, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. God says that that he is so glorious that, that there is no ability that we have that we could build a house that is big enough or glorious enough to contain God. But where does God dwell? Well, he says that he dwells with those of a poor and contrite spirit who tremble at his word. God loves the person who comes to him Not with arrogance and thinking about how wonderful they are, but the person who comes poor in spirit saying, God, I am a sinner. I'm broken and I need mercy. And so if there's someone here today that you've spent your whole life trying to earn the favor of God by by doing this good deed and that good deed, or you've lived your whole life trying to impress other people with how religious and righteous and and good you are, and you know, trying to impress them with your, your, your sharp-looking family and, and everything else, then understand today that, that God is not impressed by any of it. He is not impressed by your religious show or by all the things that you have accomplished. What He really wants is for you to just simply admit the seriousness of your sin, that you have broken His law, and that you are in desperate need of mercy. And in so doing, then cast yourself on the mercy and the grace that He alone provides. Trust in what Jesus did on the cross, and you can be saved. And so, and so if, you've, if, you've, if that's been your whole life, is trying to impress God, then Jesus is calling you to make a fundamental shift. And we would love to talk with you today about how you can know that grace, that mercy that Jesus offers in the gospel, how you can be saved. And if you are saved, don't ever lose sight of your spiritual poverty. Don't ever lose sight of that repentance that that brought you to salvation. A mark of spiritual growth is not that I become increasingly proud of where I am spiritually. As we grow in Christ, we become instead more and more aware of, of just how sinful we are, how broken we are. And how desperate we are for the grace of God. As John Newton said towards the end of his life, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. That is the heart of a true believer. So so, so folks, all of us, a need to recognize just our, our sin, our depravity. We need to walk in humility before God. And then finally, uh, I really appreciate this quote by, by D.A. Carson regarding verse 3. 
He says at the very outset of the Sermon on the Mount, we learn that we do not have the spiritual resources to put any of the sermon's precepts into practice. We cannot fulfill God's standards ourselves. We must come to Him and acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy, emptying ourselves of our self-righteousness, moral self-esteem, and personal vainglory. Emptied of these things, we are ready for Him to fill us. And folks, that's so good. Because the Sermon on the Mount is going to call us to a very high standard of righteousness. I mean, chapter 5, verse 48 says, Be perfect as God is perfect. And He is going to challenge our hearts to, to holiness and sincerity that, that is really high. But it's interesting that before Jesus gets to all those commands, all those challenges, before He calls us to that high standard, He first says, but, but if you're going to go that way, you first need to come to me with a poverty of spirit that recognizes that I can't do this on my own. I need grace and I need mercy and I am broken and sinful before the Lord. So, so the only way that you can truly become strong and do what Jesus commands is to first become weak and acknowledge your desperate need of God's grace. So, so God blesses the poor in spirit. And then secondly, God blesses those who mourn. So verse 4, returning to Matthew chapter 5, says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now I need to say at the outset that that some scholars, there's some debate about what type of mourning uh, Jesus has in mind. And and a lot of people believe that, that Jesus is specifically talking here about mourning over sin. Because that's clearly an emphasis in verse 3. So, so, and I certainly believe that we should mourn over our sin. That's a clear a biblical emphasis that, that we should grieve over our sin, that we should grieve even over the sins of society. But, but I'm confident uh, that, that Jesus here is not thinking solely of mourning over sin, but, but he's thinking more generally of, of mourning over just all the consequences of living life in a sin-cursed, broken world. And, and I say that, Uh, primarily because the first two Beatitudes uh, draw uh, pretty clearly on the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. So so we already read uh, verse 1 and saw that Messiah will come to heal the brokenhearted. And and notice that verses 2 and 3 add that when Messiah comes, He will come to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. So so that's talking not specifically about mourning over sin, uh, but mourning over over just all the the hardships of life in this broken, sin-cursed world. You know, there's a lot of mourning. There's a lot of grief in this world. So, so, So my understanding of what Jesus is saying here is that He is saying that He blesses those who mourn, Uh, over just any struggle in life, and that mourning is rooted in godly submission. Now, now this beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, is a fascinating contrast with the culture in which we live. Because we live in a society where where we want to be happy all the time, right? We want to feel good. We want to be skipping and jumping and glad all the time. And most people in our society would probably assume that if you're blessed, blessing 
means absence of mourning. I mean, we would think those two ideas are contradictory. That you can't possibly be blessed of God and be sad or be grieving. But the Bible teaches that grief is actually vital to godliness. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 2 through 4 say, Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. So, so the house of mourning would be a funeral. House of feasting would be a wedding. So better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And Jesus affirms the truth of those verses here in Matthew 5, verse 4. He says, blessed are those who mourn. So, so God's favor is not on the person who, who, who just tries to pretend like everything's hunky-dory. You know, or, or who just drowns sorrow in, in, in alcohol or drugs and wants to just feel good and pretend like none of it's real. No, God's blessing is on the person who legitimately mourns. Now, now I do want to emphasize that we have to mourn the right way. All right? Because everyone mourns at some point. Everyone grieves. We live in a sin-cursed world. There's going to be things that cause us sorrow. But, but most people, when they grieve or when they mourn, they do so really with anger and bitterness in their heart. I mean, they believe that God has taken something away from them that they deserve to have or that is good. And so they mourn because they think that what has happened is not good in the providence and purpose of God. But, but folks, the only way that we can expect the comfort that Jesus promises is if we grieve after the submissive pattern that we see over and over in Scripture. Now, last summer, we studied through the book of Job, and there's no better example of, of godly sorrow than Job. I think of, uh, you know, after he lost his, his family and after he lost all of his wealth, he says in Job 2 verse 10, Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? You see that spirit over and over in the Scriptures. You know, that you look at the laments in the Psalms and in other places. You see people dealing with real heartache, real grief. And, and, and rather than being angry about it, they come to God, they trust Him that His purposes are good, they submit to Him, you know, as... As uh, I think as Jeremiah says, they say, you are the potter, I am the clay. There's a submission, there's a humility before God. And, and God comforts those who humbly trust the goodness of His plan and lament accordingly. So if you are mourning today, you're grieving. Maybe you're at the point of struggling with depression. And you want God to lead you out of the darkness into the light and into the joy of His Word, then you must first humble yourself and submit what you think is best to what God knows is best. You know, again, I mean, that was at the core of our study of Job. That, that God knows better than we do. And I don't have to understand His every purpose. But I trust Him that His purpose is good. Because as long as you think your way is best, you will never know God's peace. 
That, that first beatitude, the humility of verse 3, it is essential to, 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 the, to the mourning in verse 4. But, but isn't it incredible to know, though, that, that when I mourn appropriately, that God sees me, He sees my heart, He sees my sincerity, He sees it if, even if no one else does, and God says, that person is blessed. His favor rests on them. His kindness rests on them. Because he is sympathetic to our sorrow. And and he rejoices in a godly expression of grief. And notice the promise that he gives to those who mourn this way. He says, they shall be comforted. Now, Now we already saw in Isaiah 61 that, that when Christ returns, He's going to comfort all who mourn. And, I, and so I do believe that, that the primary focus here of this comfort is in eternity. And of course, the Scriptures teach very clearly that someday God is going to comfort His people who mourn. So, Revelation 21 verse 4 says that when the eternal state begins, God promises that He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That is our great hope, isn't it? That our sorrows, our pains, the weights of this life, they will not endure forever. God will fix all of them in the end. And so so our great hope, and really the the primary focus of this beatitude, is is that God will comfort us in eternity, but, but it's also true. That when I humbly trust the Lord and when I submit my will to His in humility and trust, that God does give comfort today. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And praise the Lord that we can bring our sorrows to the Lord and know that He is sovereign over them all, that His purposes are good, and we can rest in Him. His Spirit gives us faith to believe what He has said is true, to cast our cares on Him, and to help us to go forward in, in the peace of God that passes all understanding. So, so blessed are those who mourn, because they will be comforted. And then the final beatitude we'll look at today is in verse 5, where God says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, now the quality that, that is in view, you know, meekness is one of those ideas that, that comes up frequently in Scripture, but really doesn't come up much in our normal society. So, so we oftentimes struggle to know what it means. So, so here's my definition of meekness. It's a humble spirit that results in a gentle manner. So really it begins in the heart, and then it works itself out in how I present myself to others in a, in a gentleness. And so as has often been said, meekness is not weakness. You know, meek people are not pushovers. And, and, and we've seen this. I mean, you know, some of the, the, the meekest people I know are, are generally people that, that they've, they've got plenty of strength. 
You're often the meekest people that you meet, they're, they're people that are very intelligent. They've got strong personalities, big opinions, God has given them uh, charismatic personalities and so forth. But, but they're not strutting around letting everyone know all the, their intelligence and gift and wit. No. They don't use their gifts to serve themselves or to push other people around. Instead, they deflect attention from themselves. And they use the gifts and the resources that God has given them not to get their way, but to be a blessing to others. I think meekness is so often an outstanding quality of godly mothers, right? You know, that, that, that godly mothers that we look to as an example, they're not pushovers, they're strong women that, with sharp minds, and, and they are a rock that, that, that holds the family together. But it's not about them. You know, it's not about showing the world how great they are and how much they endure, and they're always pushing to be at the center of attention. No, instead, they keep the focus on themselves, off of themselves. And everything is about serving others, and about lifting up them and, and finding their joy in seeing other people thrive. And, and that's an important idea because, because our world loves, loves a big, pushy, pushy personality. You know, we glory in people that are loud and, and, and people with sharp, quick minds and charisma that they use to push people around to get their way, to, to make themselves seen. You know, we love athletes that, you know, pound their chest, stick their arms in the air, and, and tell everyone to look at me. So, so meekness is not something that is very much valued in our culture. But, but Jesus says, and Jesus says he's not impressed with all the stuff that people do to gain notoriety and attention. So instead, he notices the meek. And he notices them even if no one else does. You know, at the heart of meekness is the idea that, that I don't have to be recognized. I don't have to have everyone know how smart I am, how talented I am. I don't have to be seen as big and successful and funny and everything else. You know, a meek person is someone that says, you know, praise the Lord that I can use the gifts that God has given me to serve other people. And if God sees, and I'm having genuine ministry, that's good enough for me. And, and, so, and so all of us need to pursue meekness. And, and even if no one else sees, God does see. He says, blessed are the meek. God approves, even if no one else even realizes that you're there. And, and as a result, the promise that God gives is that the meek will inherit the earth. Now, this really is a surprising blessing, all right? Because, you know, let's suppose that someone wrote a book, World Domination for Dummies. You know, and they're going to tell you how, how you can inherit the earth, how you can become powerful and, and get all the notoriety, all the attention in the world. I guarantee that there would not be a chapter on meekness. Because you look around our society, who are the people that, that rise to great power and glory? Well, it's dictators. It's people that, 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 and tyrants, people that grab authority and they use it to pursue their selfish gain. But Jesus looks forward to the kingdom. And he says that in the kingdom, the people that, who, who are going to inherit the earth, the people that are going to rule alongside Jesus, are, are not the, the big abrasive personalities that push people around. 
It's going to be the meek. And, and you know, so many of the godliest people we know are people that the world totally ignores because they're not interested in chasing human glory. They're not interested in making a name for themselves or, or chasing worldly ambitions. You know, so no one knows who they are. No one cares who they are. They just kind of blend in with the crowd. But God sees. And, and someday, there's going to be a lot of surprises at the judgment seat. And about who it is that God puts in authority. God is going to give the kingdom to the meek. And, and you know, when, when they receive glory from God and they inherit the earth, they won't have any regrets about how they invested their life here. I mean, the things that they lost here. A little bit of attention, a little bit of human glory, it's going to be worthless in comparison to the approval and the praise and the blessing of God. So Christian, don't play by the world's rules, constantly fighting to be noticed and praised by men, now constantly trying to push yourself into the limelight. No, live for God's approval. Serve other people, do what's right, and trust the Lord with the consequences. Because Jesus says, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. So with these first three Beatitudes, Jesus confronts a a worldly spirit that is deep in our hearts. We all want to be happy. We all want to feel really good about how righteous and holy and godly we are. We want people to notice us and praise us and glory in our greatness. But Jesus says, all that is worthless. What really matters is the approval of God. And what God values is someone who is broken and humble before Him. Someone who mourns with a heart of godly submission. And someone who is meek. So don't worry about measuring up to the world's expectations. Don't worry about the approval of men. No, live for the favor of God. Because His eternal blessings, they are worth far more than anything you will give up in this world. Father, thank You for Your Word and for its truth. And Lord, we thank You that You look on the heart and that You see us and You know us perfectly. And thank You for the promise of Your eternal reward Lord, we praise You that You are not a God of the strong. You are not a God of the rich and the famous and the powerful. You are the God of of the fatherless. You are the God of the orphan, the widow, as Your Word says. You are the God who, who loves the weak, who loves the humble. And so, Father, we pray that, that we would humble ourselves before You each and every day, that we would live for Your approval alone, And Lord, I pray if there's any here that have never received Jesus as their Savior, they've been living their whole lives trying to impress you and proud of their religiosity or their good deeds, I pray that today they would humble themselves before you, that they would become poor in spirit and receive the good news of the gospel. And so give us grace this week to honor you, to live your word, and to reflect the spirit of Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.